WMQ presents Our Son Pete. Hello and welcome to something completely different. Uh, for the next little while, we are putting WMQ&A on a shelf and bringing you WMQ Presents, a series of pilot episodes that allow um, my co-host, Matt Lazowitz, and I to play with format uh, while we wait for the industry to do whatever it is it's going to do. Um, you know, basically, uh, you know, we're, we're recording this on, on Sunday of this week, the actual week of, and if you've been paying attention to anything it's like you know diamond said it was going to stop shipping and then marvel and D- you know dc was like well we're probably still going to put everything out online and then marvel's just kind of quietly like yeah that stuff's all still on comiXology advertises coming out on april 1st so i you know it's just it's a little hard to book guests right now when uh you know not really sure what's coming out when <laughs> but uh you know, that's okay, because it gives us this little while to to play with form, to experiment, and, you know, hopefully just have a little fun in, in a dark time. We, we've never had problems having fun. That's true. That, that, that's what you get for pushing 30 years of friendship. Damn straight. Uh, so, we're going to start off uh, by doing something that... Uh, I, I, I've been threatening to do <laughs> for for quite some time. So uh, the subtitle of this episode is Our Son Pete. Uh, Matt, Matt and I are going to spend the next hour talking about our favorite mutant, Pete Wisdom. You'd think that was a joke, but it's really not. It's, it's not. It's not. <laughs> um... Yeah, uh, created by Warren Ellis and and Ken Ledkiller Lashley uh, in Excalibur nineteen ninety four's Excalibur number eighty six and and we're just we're we're gonna talk about our favorite British mutant for uh, a while. Just just buckle in. <laughs> yeah, you know, for those of you who are mostly familiar with him from you know his recent appearances in Teeny Howard's Excalibur, there's more Pete Wisdom out there than you'd think. Not as much as there should be, but more than you'd think. And not all of it's worth reading. I'm just going to say that right off the bat, and we'll get into it. <laughs> oh yes, we will. But but we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna start with the golden years. Um, yeah. So as I mentioned, uh, first appeared in Excalibur number eighty six. Uh, I got my copy signed by Ken Lashley at uh, a con. Remember cons? Those were fun. Um. Anyway, there's an ad in it for. Uh, God, whenever I go back into old books, man, I like from the 90s, I just love going through ads, trading cards and video games and corn nuts. Anyway, this – yeah, go ahead. I look at books oh, – no, I look at books now and I'm like, I'm never going to remember any of these ads. I'm never going to go back and remember fondly house ad after house ad after house ad. Although the, the Kubert School ads on the back of the DC books this past month were really cool to see. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. All right. So quick aside, uh, shout out to friend of the show, Anthony Marquis, uh, a on those Kubert school ads, which are showing up in the DC books. And I think dynamite as well, but, uh, they're taking their, uh, they're taking the Kubert school 
like online and basically anybody who wants to take a class now can and it's it's pretty rad and we should talk to anthony about that at some point very soon uh <laughs> note to self in the middle of recording a show yes <laughs> but anyway so there's an ad in this one for uh fleer ultra skeleton warriors trading cards on the back remember skeleton warriors <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. I remember them as a name. I think mostly from the ads and comics, and from that one member of the of Genesis's uh, Dark Riders who was very obviously like, "Hey, Skeleton Warriors, the kids like that now. Let's make a mutant who looks like one of them." Yeah. Oh man, what a what a horrible timestamp. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I thought, you know, we'd start off by, before we start going into the stories themselves, talking a little bit about, like, what we actually like about this, I I don't know, D-tier mutant? I mean, I mean let's face it, he's not he's not Cyclops, he's not Wolverine, you know, I, I think uh, we can comfortably say that. I, I think he's now safely ensconced himself in the C-tier. I think if you get your own miniseries at any point, you at least qualify as C-tier. All right, take that, maggot. <laughs> yeah! <laughs> it's coming. <laughs> His day will come. Uh, <clears throat> but, Matt, what do, you, what do you start off? You know, what, what is it that, that drew you in to Pete Wisdom as an impressionable 14-year-old in, in 1995? Hmm. I know it was that the biting, snarky sense of humor. That 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 Ellis humor, which I had never really experienced in comics before that, was absolutely fascinating. And I'm, and I don't know why. I don't know what story I might have read at an impressionable age that made this a thing. But I've always liked a character or been interested in a character who has that sort of redemptive arc who's looking to try to be better whether it's uh, Angel from the Whedonverse or Angel is one of the, the I mean that's sort of the defining aspect of that character which is why he's the first one that pops into my mind but Wisdom has that sort of I've been a bastard and now I'm trying to be a real good guy and that's an interesting character arc for me. What yeah, about you? Ab- absolutely. I mean, you know, and and when he when he starts, I mean, he's a bastard. You know what I mean? And even like I would even it say through the initial Ellis run, he's still a bastard. I mean, the heart is there, but you know, I think reading Ellis's Pete Wisdom is very different from reading, say, Teeny Howard's Pete Wisdom. Not that she's you know emasculated him or anything like that. It's, I, I think, you know, and maybe it's just the time period. I think in the 90s you can get away with being, you know, more of an asshole. <laughs> it's interesting because I think that's Ellis's arc with Pete. That that last issue is when he, fin- I mean, he finally set, tells Kitty that he loves her. And that was a whole thing mm-hmm. in that flashback issue, in the flash forward, excuse me, issue, where he absolutely says, you know, in that dark future, the days of future past England future, he never told Kitty he loved her. And him finding that heart in the end is 
Ellis's full arc for that character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, definitely. And, you know, this is, this is proto Ellis. This is Warren Ellis as like an up and comer, not, you know, the, the, he's not the sort of God mode Warren Ellis that, you know, now 25 years later who has, you know, the authority and next wave and, you know, Batman's grave and all this other and transmetropolitan under and his belt. Planetary. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, wisdom is Ellis's first take on the John Constantine archetype. Cause there's Constantine and then there's every character that Ellis has created is sort of, let me take John Constantine or all of his protagonists and sort of tweak them. And, uh, I mean, he especially. I mean, he plays with that, especially in. And I'm. It's gonna kill me. I'm going to look it up. In Planetary Number Seven, uh, to be in England in the summertime, where he flat out lampoons that Constantine trope. And in the last pages of that issue, you see a character who had supposedly died, who was. Clearly, a Constantine analog, as every character in Transmetropolitan is not in Transmetropolitan, excuse me, in Planetary is an analog for someone. Mm-hmm. And in the end, after he kills this sort of, I guess, Miracle Man analog or just Superman analog, he like takes off the the the, the clothes he's wearing, the trench coat, and everything. And underneath, he's got the Spider Jerusalem tattoos. He's flat out saying that he took John Constantine and transmuted him into Spider Jerusalem for the modern era. And Pete Wisdom is the midstep, is the beginning of Ellis creating the character type that would reach its apotheosis in. Uh, Spider Jerusalem, which is why I read Spider Jerusalem with a British accent, even though that book takes place in bloody America. I I cannot imagine anyone doesn't read Spider Jerusalem with an English accent. I do too. Every time, I, mean, I killed Santa Claus. I killed him with this. Exactly. <laughs> it's the same with Elijah Snow. Like they flat. There's a whole issue of planetary where sherlock holmes shows up and he, holmes makes some snarky comment about elijah snow's like rural american accent and i'm like yeah but no he's still british i mean jenny sparks and pete wisdom are flat out british but spider and elijah snow are absolutely british even if they're actually not <laughs> because that's ellis that is ellis that is, that is ellis it's 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 that good good stuff we love Ellis's bastards. Um, <laughs> so when we first meet Pete in uh, Excalibur 86, he's this is like a prologue to the issue. Um, he's in the middle of this village, this Thai village that he just decimated uh, as part of his work for this British uh, supernatural intelligence agency called Black Air. And he's crying. He's kind of, he's feeling the weight of his actions. He's been, you know, kind of doing this for so long. But instead of kind of growing a thick shell, which certainly the performative aspect of that is there, you know, it's it's weighing on him. This is a man who's decided to to quit the game, so to speak, which is how he ends up getting mixed in with Excalibur in the in the first place. So. 
you know, it would be very easy to sort of just write him off as as another, you know, 90s bad boy just waiting to be tamed by the female love interest. But, you know, for as much as he is a bastard and a heavy smoker and has it in for Moira McTaggart, you know, there, there's we do see the pathos there. And, you know, I mean, Logan has yeah, I'm I'm trying to remember a specific instance of seeing Logan cry. And I know I, I think I have this image of Mark Silvestri, of Mark Silvestri Logan with the single tear. This isn't the single tear. This is someone who is completely broken down in the middle of the carnage he has caused and is a mess. This is a broken man and a man who's the weight of everything he has done is now crushing him. This is this is James Bond with with remorse. Yes, this is much closer to your Daniel Craig Bond than any of your happy go lucky Pierce Brosnan, Sean Connery, Roger Moore Bonds. Oh, definitely. And I was actually I was perfectly I was thinking like Quantum of Solace James Bond. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then the thing is, and, and this is one of the rare times in the Ellis run, I'm gonna be I'm not gonna lie, that there is visual continuity. Uh he's still in the tattered like his his trench coat is suited is are a mess in the middle of this first scene. The next time you see him, he's on Muir Island, he's getting uh embedded in Excalibur to go on a mission to Genosha, he's still in tatters. Like he hasn't he hasn't changed. You know, and maybe that speaks to him being broken, but it also speaks to like he hasn't had time to change his suit, or maybe he doesn't have like an entire uh, again, unlike James Bond, you know, wardrobe of of you know a closet men's the men's warehouse in a closet. <laughs> I don't think we ever see Pete Wisdom in anything other than a trench coat black suit, white shirt, skinny black tie. Uh, in At this least during era, that yes. Ellis run. Yeah. No. He he's he has the like same suit for every day of the week kind of wardrobe. Yeah. Rumpled uh government man. Yeah. And, and then we we get to know him for one issue and then we take four months off because it's Age of Apocalypse. That's nuts. And I'm shocked that Ellis didn't have a Pete Wisdom analog in Excalibur. And it's not collected in the Excalibur Visionaries Warren Ellis trades. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't able to dig out my copies, but I don't remember him in the background or anything. And then he introduces uh, Damask, who shows up as one of the London Hellfire Club. So he's like, this is Ellis like throwing shit at the wall at this point in his run. Well, you know, okay, so I wonder about this. God, correct me. All right, this is a correct me if I'm wrong. No, I probably am wrong. All right, Ellis. Ellis in the four months leading up to Age of Apocalypse, right? He's the rookie in the X office. Nope. He he's the guy that was like, okay, we've got this book, Excalibur. Nobody's doing anything with it. Lobdell can't write it anymore. You know, give it give it something, right? And then. He does a Soul Sword trilogy, which is kind of tying up a loose end. And then 86 is really the first issue where he gets to sink his teeth into what he wants to do with this book. And he's got to put it on hold for four months to get through Age of Apocalypse. Now, every other writer, I think, 
got to kind of wrap up their arcs before everything got crystallized. Either wrap up their arcs or do a sort of arc ending cliffhanger. Yeah. The only because X Force ends on a cliffhanger, but it's very much a bump, bump, bump. This is what we've been building to for months with Rainfire cliffhanger. Exactly. Versus a okay, I had one issue to build to this cliffhanger, so yeah, we got a cliffhanger. I mean, in X Force's case, Fabian was writing that book. He was also writing X Men at the time, so he was involved in Legion Quest. He knew what was coming, so he could afford. You know, he could write the cliffhanger, bake the cliffhanger into X Force. The only book that I, the only other book that I think might that might have been a problem for is X Factor. Yeah, and X Factor was at a weird rotating create. Maybe not rotating, but it was also sort of at creative loose ends for a while there like i don't i mean dematis had been mm-hmm. writing it for a bit mm-hmm. but i don't even think dematis wrote the last issue i think it was like todd dezago it was Todd. I'm pretty in. sure it was todd dezago yeah so again it felt like okay we have to just insert one issue and have it be a cliffhanger and yeah there you go yeah because well, they did write happen. the x factor did have the legion quest prologue true very yeah. true but ne- so nevertheless, uh, yeah, Ellis finally starts showing what his direction for is for that book. And he's got to put it on hold for four months to write a story about Age of Apocalypse Nightcrawler getting ferried to uh, Avalon slash the Savage Land and Deadpool's there. <laughs> it, and it, I really want to go back and reread that arc in light of everything we now see with Mystique and Destiny. Because they're very much separate. Like, I mean, Mystique goes up to the Savage Land and Destiny's up there with, you know, the the, the first real instance of a huggernaut and Doug Ramsey. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I'd love to read Ellis writing Mystique and Destiny, despite him probably having no idea that they were in a relationship at any point because mm-hmm. Ellis clearly hadn't read much in the way of X-Books. Um or, or didn't particularly care about continuity. True. Um, and, and that's that's part and parcel of it. You know, the tone of Excalibur in this era is so radically different under Ellis than it was under Claremont and Davis or, or Davis solo. Uh, you know, but at the same time, I mean, Davis left uh, 50, issue 50-ish, right? Uh, no, no, no. He hung around he, for a little bit afterwards? Yeah, he ran, hung around for about a year, because the last issue he wrote was in the mid-60s, Days okay. of Future Yet to Come. So he'd been off the book for less than a about a year from when he left the book to when Ellis took over. No, a little more than a year, year and a half, year and a half to somewhere in the year and a half to two year range. Okay, so we're looking in the neighborhood of like 20-ish issues where this book doesn't really have a direction. You know what I mean? It gets picked up by Scott Lobdell. There's some other fill-in writers in there. You know, it's doing some X-Men adjacent things. It gets tied into Fatal Attractions. It gets tied into the Phalanx Covenant. But there wasn't really a voice at the helm. You know, it was just sort of shedding cast members yeah yeah i mean the only expo the only issues of excalibur i had read before ellis took over 
was um, the crossover issues, was Mm -hmm. Phalanx Covenant and Fatal Attractions, because it was really removed from the other X-Books up until around then. Absolutely. And, you know, you could even argue, even under Ellis, it it was still removed-ish, you know what I mean? Like, it tied into Onslaught, but very tangentially. It, it, it felt a little more tight in, I think, because he was rebuilding the team from characters from other X-Books. Mm-hmm. So those characters felt more involved. While Nightcrawler and Kitty were, you know, hardcore X-characters, since I started reading the X-Books when they were already off in Excalibur, mm-hmm. my only real exposure to those characters was trading cards. Mm-hmm. So it, it felt more integrated because you suddenly had Wolvesbane, who had been on X-Factor, and Colossus, who had been so deeply involved in the X-Books and in Fatal Attractions and things before then. But you're right, plot-wise, it is very much not tied into anything except when it would occasionally pop in for a crossover. Yeah, I mean, like an issue, I think it's issue 100, but like Scott, Gene, and Xavier, maybe it's just Scott and Gene. Well, they all pop in for a visit. Scott and Gene, because Xavier was Onslaught at that point. Oh my god, yeah, duh. Uh, Yeah, Scott and and Gene pop in for a visit. We find out about the Xavier protocols and and all that fun stuff. (laughs) And and there was a one-issue crossover with X-Man. Oh, yeah! Which, boy howdy, if there was a crossover that was more written for me, it's one part by Warren Ellis and one part by, I'm pretty sure, John Ostrander. I mean, that's kind of like, hey, Matt, here, have fun with this. Wait, did Ostrander write X-Man? Ostrander wrote X-Man, I believe, coming... coming, He did for a bit, and it was right after the... Right after it came over from Age of Apocalypse, um, Loeb did a couple issues, then Ostrander was on there for a bit, and it's... Interesting. When you try to Google X-Man with an issue number, it keeps saying, do you mean X-Man? Like, no, I mean X-Man. I am Googling <laughs> this intentionally. And then, and then Google says, yeah, but you don't really mean X-Man, right? Like, you don't you don't want to go back and look at old issues of X-Man, right? <laughs> if Ostrander was, I'm just pop, looking at random. He was writing it at issue 10, and I believe the crossover was 15... No, no, no. 15, we're in... We're getting there, because that's the run-up run to Onslaught when he's fighting... Oh, no, okay. 18 is the crossover. So let's try... I, You know, the fun with Google, folks. Yeah. Um, 17 is not it. So let's try 16. I bet it's 16, because it's the, you know... the le- Yep, yeah, uh, no, no, no. Okay, so maybe I went too far. Fourteen. I know. Nope. Fourteen is the crossover with Cable. Oh boy, Nate Gray really crossed over with a bunch of stuff for a they while. They bounced there. him around. Listen, Nate Gray was the fetch of of mid nineties X Men. They just kept trying to make him happen. And you know, it ah twelve, number twelve, and yes, indeed, John Ostrander and Steve Scrooge. So Ostrander and Scrooge on one part of the crossover, and Ellis and Carlos Pacheco on the other. That that is some you know pretty good creative teams. I mean, Ostrander didn't use wisdom. I believe wisdom was like like literally when uh, 
Nate is traveling through Muir Island, Wisdom's like asleep in one panel. <laughs> or, Sir, oh, not appearing in this film. Yeah, oh, no, I'm not even correct. Like, when they list supporting characters on Wikipedia, Wisdom is not mentioned. So Wisdom does not appear in that. He, he is Sir not appearing in this part of the crossover. <laughs> But Rory Campbell was in there. Good old Rory Campbell. <laughs> oh, that's right. We started talking about how this team got massive <laughs> under it, it, Warren Ellis. It really did. There were a lot of characters. And I got to give Ellis credit. He did something with most of them. That You know what? In, in reading through these old Excalibur issues, no, that that's definitely true. You know, uh, Brian... At this point, he's going by Britannic, but, like, he's starting to kind of find this love of, like, building things. And he keeps building, like, new ships for the team. Um, Megan learns to read. Dovelock is exploring his humanity and his sort of dual personalities. Wolfsbane comes to the island to care for Moira. Kurt is all swashbucklery. Yeah, which is really, that's that's A-plus Kurt content right there. It really is. Um and and then you've got uh, and Peter is you know sort of dealing with his time in the the acolytes and everybody kind of giving him side eye about it. And then you've got Kitty Pride. Yes. Well, this is okay. So now now it's time to address the age discrepancy. Um, because yes. they say flat out at at one point you know Pete's got to be like ten years my senior. Ellis didn't know how old we were taught. We talked a little bit before about Ellis not really knowing uh, about X continuity or, or disregarding it to, to suit his story. Ellis didn't know how old Kitty was. You know, Kitty, I think prior to this was the Annie Edison of, 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 of Excalibur. You know, she's pretty young. We try not to sexualize her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They, 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 they mostly do that. Um, yeah, Claire, Claremont has his moments. Yeah, that's true. Poppy had his moments, and 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 Poppy also uh, had you asked him at the time uh, when he was not writing the X books. Uh, you know, this was not that long after his unceremonious departure uh, after X Men number three. Uh, you know, would have thought Kitty fifteen or sixteen, which would definitely make this super creepy, and probably is still. I mean, she she had her 16th birthday in Excalibur 24. So that was 63, 60, 66 issues before she and Wisdom hook up. Not that comic book time follows any sort of... Uh... No, absolutely not. But it was a considerable amount of real world time. True. And... Frankly, people had been drawing Kitty looking older. Most of those artists after Davis were drawing her looking older. If all Ellis did was read, you know, the year before he came on, he would he could would have easily assumed she was in the 1819 sort of standard youngish superhero age group, which is sort of that age frame that basically all of the original New Mutants live in. <laughs> They're all perpetually somewhere between 19 and 25. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that Pete Wisdom is Kitty's great love. He's not. You know, they, they weren't built to last past the end of the, uh, the end of Ellis. 
you know, right? (laughs) No, no, he was not. He was a weirdly broken person. Now, I will flat out say I think Kitty has a whole thing with wanting to be in relationships with broken people. Broken peers specifically. And no, I mean, freaking Ilyana and Rachel are both people with serious baggage. No matter who she's with, no matter who they are, if they are unhealthy, she seems to be attracted to them. I'm kind of Kitty's in the same place that, that I kind of wish, you know, that I was thinking Scott should have been in before he wound up in a happy quadrangle. Um, that this is a person who's pretty much been in relationships or pining for relationships for a long time and needs some single time to, you know, find themselves. I'm kind of glad Jerry Duggan was giving her that before, you know, she died or maybe not, or who knows at this point? We'll see. (laughs) We'll find out after the quarantine. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But, uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's my point. I mean, like, wisdom is not probably not even the best Peter that she was ever with. Uh, although Colossus definitely was not in a good space uh, at this time. And, and just to drive the point home, I also respect Kitty too much as a coded queer icon to keep her shackled to wisdom. You know what the good thing that wisdom's relationship with Kitty was? He treated her like a peer. Peter always treated her like, you know, the younger, you know, like he had this protective, you know, I am, I am strong and older and you are my sweet little flower. And now I'm going to cheat on you with someone who I can find physically attractive and actually consummate that with and not be a complete creep. Thanks, Jim Shooter. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, there, there's too much coding with, Rachel and Ilyana to determine what kind of, if there was any sort of physical relationship there, but they would have been more than just Pete didn't treat her as a, as a pure Pete treated her with a level of respect that you can't have from someone you grew up with, but someone who's seeing you from the outside and being impressed with you which she never would have gotten from Peter Rasputin. And it wasn't the kind of relationship she would have had with, with Ilyana because of Ilyana's whole demon princess thing, maybe Rachel, but it's a very different dynamic than she had had with her one canonical boyfriend at that point. That's for sure. Absolutely. And if you look at issue 92, which is where Colossus comes to Muir Island for Kitty and finds her with wisdom and just beats the ever-loving shit out of of Pete Wisdom. And they both end up in the med bay. Uh Uh-huh. Wisdom gives as good as he gets. Absolutely. He ends up, like, melting part of Colossus's steel spine. Uh, He got better. But uh, there's this great scene where... They basically they put Colossus in a in a cell, uh, you know, because he came to the island and was immediately doing violences to to people, you know, fresh off of, off of being one of the acolytes. And Kurt Nightcrawler confronts Colossus and just says to him flat out, "You are a child," and it's just, 
takes his friend to task directly. You know, we always talk about uh, Uncanny 183, you know, the issue where uh, Kurt and Logan take Piotr to a bar and let the juggernaut knock the crap out of him as, as penance for breaking, breaking Kitty's heart as sort of being the, you know, the ultimate classic example of, you know, his teammates teaching him a lesson. But here, Kurt just tells him to his face, like, you know, your behavior is unacceptable. I understand that you've gone through a great deal of trauma, which the early 90s were not kind to Colossus. He basically lost his entire family, including his brother, who he was only just reconnected with, only to find out that he's basically a madman. Um, you know, but was like, listen, you're going to stay here and you're going to work through your shit uh, and we're going to keep an eye on you, but we're going to have a hard time trusting you. Uh, and then, obviously, old habits return, but, you know, it, it's... It was good to see Piotr kind of called to the carpet by his teammates for everything that he, you know had kind of come before. Yeah, I mean, to this day, I don't think Colossus is mentally and emotionally sound. I think he has a lot of issues that he has never worked through, and is more than a bit of a mess uh absolutely and i i think that you know if you've read recent issues of x-force they're definitely they have definitely addressed that i think the scene with him and domino where they talk about you know we could just end it all here and drown and be reborn you know i, I think that cuts to the core of it without burying it in a whole bunch of exposition and also it was just a beautiful scene and also yeah. i like colossus and domino yeah <laughs> Yeah, I I thought I I could not get over how much I liked them in Hopeless's or Hallam's uh, Cable and X-Force. And I like that they're reconnecting. They make for a really fun, interesting couple. You know, so if there's a lesson to be learned here, guys, all ships are valid. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Uh, Which I guess is why polyamory works so well for the Um. (laughs) X-Men. Yeah, it does. Uh, But... Nonetheless, um, Ellis absolutely played Pete and Kitty as Mulder and Scully. He, he play, he had them investigating wacky mysteries and he had fun with it. And I mean, Ellis was the X-Files is another show that is really ingrained in that Ellis DNA. So I'm all for that. Yeah, I mean, again, guys, this was 1995. X-Files was at the height of its power. I was watching it, and and the first post-Age of Apocalypse arc, Dream Nails, is is just Kitty and and Pete, Pride and Wisdom, doing doing X-Files stuff. It's a government conspiracy with aliens, and at one point, Pete Wisdom blatantly says, and I quote, the truth is out there, and it's got great, like, bloody teeth. Yeah, I mean, they go to a pub, and they've got Ellis has Pete Wisdom meet his three government contacts. Like, okay, they're in the government, and not government conspiracy nuts, but um, Jardine, Pittman, Pittman and, and Doyle. Doyle. They're the lone gunmen. They are, <laughs> they are Pete Wisdom's lone gunmen. I, I can't tell you which one is the fro hickey, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> it, Every 
everyone can be the Frohickey because that's who you want. That's the T-shirt for this episode. Everyone can be the Frohickey. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but again, this is 1995 and this is all happening and it's a blatant X-Files ripoff and I'm 15 and I like all these things. Yeah, th- this was this was right there. It's 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 informative stuff. And and also Pride and Wisdom's banner, it's flirty as all get out and it's fun. <laughs> yeah, for for any other issue Ellis writes this might not be the kitty pride that people who'd been reading Excalibur were used to, but this is a character with a voice that is fun. And Ellis loves this character and he does a great job with it. I mean, this for this version of Kitty is an adult. Yeah. She she can she can handle she can hang. She can handle her own. You know, she lets Wisdom get as close as, as she wants him to get, which, you know, by issue ninety turns out to be, you know, <laughs> as close as you can get. But I mean, she's clearly got agency in, in what is going on. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, And then immediately following that is perhaps my favorite issue of Excalibur, of the Warren Ellis run, and honestly, probably in my personal top ten for for comics. Absolutely. I I know the issue of which you speak, and it is high up there for me, too. Uh, Issue 91, it's it's the issue where the team goes to a bar, uh, and they all bond, and most of them get drunk. And it's, it's... you know, one of those issues I've always loved, those quiet issues after a big story where it's just character beats. It is the oops all berries of comics. Um, I, 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 they, yeah, it's up there with like Uncanny 297 and X Force 18 and, oh God, uh, Uncanny 308, you know, th- those kinds of issues. The only quibble I have with this issue. And it's my quibble with the Ellis run in general. This one issue has four friggin' pencilers. Okay, yeah, all right. So we're going to talk about this real quick. You can tell that Excalibur was not a priority book for the X office because the, the art is all over the place. And I don't necessarily blame some of the better artists on this. I, I just... No, I mean it's a goddamn hodgepodge, and and some of it. Listen, it goes from like Ken, excuse me, it goes from like Ken Lashley to Carlos Pacheco to Larry Stroman. These are all good artists, guys. Yeah. To and then it goes to like Derek Moy and David Williams, and it just becomes a goddamn. Casey Jones does a buttload of those issues, and it was a shame because he did. He was he did two or three in a row, and then they're like, "Okay, Carlos Pacheco, he's he's new and hot. Let's get him." And he does two or three, and then Jones comes back, and Jones does a bunch, and then they bring Pacheco back for the last issue. It's sort of like, yeah, Casey Jones, you're doing a good job with this book, and I he did I think more than anybody else, but it was always like you're just the fill-in guy until we can get somebody with a bigger name. He was the Casey Jones was the Roger Cruz of uh, <laughs> this this era of Excalibur, and the thing is, like when Pacheco finally comes on and like consistently, and I think that's like issue ninety six ish. I want to say he does like ninety five, ninety six, ninety seven, mm-hmm. part of a hundred and a hundred and three. And Jones does the like 
101, 102, 98, 99, and there were like three or four artists on 100 again. Yeah, it, it's uh, it, it does make the comics somewhat unreadable if I didn't love the story as much as I did. And another thing, okay, here's this is the other thing that drove me nuts. Uh, lettering at this time. So this is... This is the age of, of Richard Starkings and Comicraft, okay? Uh, when basically he just, Starkings makes his own, like, font house. And I think he j- had, like, just bought, like, a whole new suite of fonts. And he was just throwing them all in. Uh, the second issue of Dream Nails, uh, issue, I think it's, like, 89, uh, there's, like, the narration boxes for Kitty and Pete use two different fonts, and then they switch back to, like, stan- like your standard, uh, hand, you know, lettering. And then, like, the, the story name has its own font, and it looks like Rocco's Modern Life logo. It's, the, just, it's all over the place. The Uncreated have their own font, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, and their own word balloons with, like, these, like, concentric uh, el- pink and fuchsia ellipses. Yeah, no, that that was, you know, everyone needs to blame Todd Klein and Sandman. Because that's, <laughs> that, that, Todd Klein, and, and I'm, I'm not throwing any shade at Richard Stark, because he did some great lettering, but Todd Klein is sort of the gold standard upon which all lettering falls, and he did this thing in Sandman with dreams, unique word bubbles, and that was when people were like, you know, we can do some crazy things with with word bubbles and it started a a thing. There definitely was a trend in the nineties towards stylized word bubbles. And I think like in 95, like especially post age of apocalypse, you start to see a lot of that coming to the head. Digital coloring becomes all the rage and, and lettering is, yeah, it's, it's a whole thing. Um, But when when Pacheco finally comes on board, you you start to see a glimmer of well there was there seems to be a consistent we're getting a consistent art style and the teams are getting new uniforms and Kurt shaves his head and he has a goatee now and yeah it, 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 none of it lasts and like that wasn't the only book that was like that too it was Cable it was like Ian Churchill was the regular artist but he was bouncing in and out um yeah. Because they lost Steve Scross to X-Man, who had been the new regular artist on cable for four issues before Age of Apocalypse. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, 90s art. Yeah, but anyway, we we started this by talking about uh, issue 91. Um, The whole team goes to a pub. They're all bonding. Kitty and Pete kind of come out and say, hey, we're in a relationship. We like each other a lot. I'd like to join your team, please. And, you know, Kurt and Brian uh, give him the whole if you dare hurt her speech, you know, being the the threatening older brothers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Moira is drunk off her ass and just, okay, here we go. Here's the next tangent I'm going to lean hard into, man. Ellis you know, we talk. We give Claremont shit for his accents, his phonetic accents. <laughs> Ellis would make Claremont say, eh, "I think that's a bit much." <laughs> I, Ellis has that. Uh, uh, there's definitely a, you know, English versus Scottish thing with how Ellis writes Moira McTaggart. I, I okay, so I don't know 
if Ellis personally has something against the Scots, but you know, it starts off with, with wisdom sassing Moira. Cause she asked him not to smoke in her research laboratory and he tells her to sod off. That's like first appearance shit. But eventually everybody starts ribbing on Moira, the woman who's dying of the legacy virus. All anybody can talk about is how her coffee is terrible. Yes. Yes. But, but you know, at the same time, he doesn't do the same thing to Wolvesbane, who is also quite Scottish. And he writes one of the best Wolvesbane stories of all time. That's true. He wrote 90... the issue where she confronts Reverend Craig. Yeah, 93 is a great Wolvesbane story. So, And Rory Campbell's Scottish, too. No, it's mostly just Moira. I just think he, he decided that Moira would be the comedic foil upon which to, to put the a lot of that burden maybe because she is so the straight woman of the book that it would be harder to, you know, but I don't know, but yeah, he, Pete really does give Moira a lot of crap. And, and, and Moira brings some of it on herself in the, in the bar issue, she gets soused and she's like threatening the bartender and her accent gets, it's just, it's all brogue. It's not even, you know, translatable as English anymore. It needed caption boxes to, to translate it. <laughs> you know, meanwhile, Hickman writes her like she's friggin' Veronica, Cor- Veronica Corningstone from Anchorman practicing her non-regional diction. Like the Many Lives of Moira McTaggart issue, I don't remember an accent. No, I think he really just, he wrote her like a Hickman character. <laughs> she is one of the more Hickman-y, but has a very distinct voice in that style. That's true. But, She's both the smartest person in the room and also Clarissa explains it all. Yes. <laughs> but 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 back to Pete Wisdom because we're we're we're, we're a ways in here and we're, you know, That's true. we're still in the first part of our notes. <laughs> But we can talk about this run forever. That's true. Well, this is, yeah, yeah, go ahead. We, this is one of the runs that we bonded over back when we were weans ourselves. So that, that is true. There's a soft spot, big soft spot for this run. Now, here, here's here's a question, and I don't know that either of us are suited to actually answer this because, all right, I I didn't read classic Excalibur prior to this. You know, I didn't read the sword is drawn until. I don't know, a couple of years ago to fans of, of classic Excalibur, you know, the, the Claremont and Davis stuff was Pete wisdom Poochie. <laughs> I'm, I would have to assume. Yes. This is a question to probably see an answer to once, uh, Jay and miles of Jay and miles explain the X-Men get back to post age of apocalypse Excalibur, which probably is going to be till next year, <laughs> right? But my assumption is yes, yes, because Wisdom was all over that book. Because I know, like when he wasn't in an issue, I was standing around going, "Where's Pete Wisdom?" <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, there, it does get to be. You do get a little bit of the old sort of farcical Excalibur, though. Uh, in the run-up to issue 100, there all of a sudden there's this subplot where Lockheed uh, reappears and he hates Wisdom and is constantly stealing his cigarettes and burning his clothes. And yeah. also talking, which I don't think he did before. 
or has really done since. I think that was, I mean, when I think whenever we've seen him given a speech balloon, it's in, you know, some sort of weird alien script. I think maybe if at all. I'm, I'm trying to remember the, the uh, Whedon's astonishing because wasn't it revealed there that he was like a covert agent of sword or something weird like that? Yeah. And I'm pretty sure either in there or in Kieran Gillen's sword, uh, Lockheed does have a word balloon, but it's all, you know, stuff that makes Krakoan look easy to comprehend. It's like reading dupe. Yes, exactly. Yes. It's, it's something like dupe speak only he didn't do it enough for people to build up the, uh, the, the letters. It's just gobbledygook. Now, before we leave the early years, speaking of things I've been threatening to talk about for a while, oh. this okay. feels like a good time to bring it up. Yeah, yeah, okay. And I will, I have one other interesting little note about these early years, but I'll do that after you reveal my secret shame. Secret shame? <laughs> How dare? Yeah, no. Okay. No. So, as, as we've mentioned many times, Matt and I have been friends for almost 30 years. When we were in, like, high school, maybe early college, uh, we dabbled in fanfic. <laughs> I think everyone probably did at some point or another. Oh, sure, yeah, you know. Uh, we had this whole, like, X-Men Apocalypse trilogy where Apocalypse actually won, took over the world, and all that, but eventually he's defeated by the X-Men. And you could tell that our pet characters uh, got more time than others. So there was a lot of Mr. Sinister. There was a lot of Deadpool. There was there was a lot of a Cable. Lot of cable. <laughs> um, there, there was a lot of Pete Wisdom. Oh, a whole lot of Pete Wisdom. Pete Wisdom becomes the Prime Minister of England. Yeah, uh, in the third part of the trilogy, because <laughs> he, he was the only British mutant left. The only like he was the he war hero. It, it was a thing. It was a, it was a thing, and it still continued the wisdom Lockheed. Uh, yes, Lockheed <laughs> rivalry to torment him because why not? There was a bit where he had barred purple flying dragons from Parliament, and so Lockheed would just start painting himself different colors. <laughs> so at one point he was chartreuse. Yes, in cerulean blue, like a gentle breeze. Yeah, there you go. There's that X-Files goodness again. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but one other thing that I wanted to bring up when mm -hmm. I was re-looking re at these issues recently is that when in Excalibur 90, there is a, a villain, a member of Black Air, who's in, uh, interrogating wisdom named Shrine. Shrine, yeah. Shrine. Shrine, right? Because it was Shrine and Scratch. Mm -hmm. um, and Shrine is a telepath, and he's in Wisdom's head looking at his darkest memories. And one of them involves Wisdom's mother, who was killed waiting for... She was in her window waiting for Pete to come home, mm -hmm. or to come visit. And she, he was, she was killed by... They mentioned the name Michael Robert Ryan, which I wasn't familiar with, but it it was such a specific thing. I went back and I looked it up, and that's a real spree killer who went on this massacre in Hungerford, uh, Berkshire, and that is a very Ellis thing. Ellis loves, and it, it it that reaches its sort of peak in books like Fell, and those those weird three part miniseries he did for Wildstorm. Red and Two Step, mm -hmm. um, where Ellis likes to re likes to look up weird things online and then 
based stories around them. And Crooked Little Vein is just a novel of weird asides that I'm sure Ellis read about online and decided to just string together. Uh, no, de- uh, definitely. And, and we just should say that Pride and Wisdom does exist as a three-issue miniseries and is weird and delightful and is a v- one of the more Ellis-y comics of that time because he really does very little superheroing in it and really just writes a weird mystery. Yeah, it's definitely Ellis leading into the conspiracy theory uh, nut in him and also starting to play with some of the elements of introducing sort of weirdos in the government that uh, (laughs) will become part and parcel of wisdom later in his career. But uh, it is time. It's time to talk about the Dark Age. It's oh, time to yeah. talk about the lost years. Yeah, there's Ellis leaves Excalibur at issue 103. And it would have been very easy for the next writers to ignore Pete Wisdom. And they don't necessarily. I mean, ex- this is uh, cover dated November of 96. Mm-hmm. So we've got a long time with a Pete Wisdom away from people who get him. John Arcudi does two issues and that where Wisdom barely appears and then Ben Rab takes over. And that's when we meet the pod person. Yeah, which is a reference to I believe something online that we read at the time about someone addressing this wisdom as a pod person, as someone who looks like Pete wisdom, but isn't and has stuck in our heads because wisdom becomes a little too Wolverine. Yeah. That I think that's a good way to describe all of a sudden, like he doesn't, he's using the hot knives all the time and that's not something he enjoys doing. Yeah. I mean, and there, he still is haunted. I mean, there's the, but Rab almost immediately kills off one of Wisdom's government contacts, Mr. Jardine, who is the most well-fleshed out of those characters. Um, he, he he introduces an ex-girlfriend who is a hit woman who tried to kill the queen. And you get a scene of Wisdom being like knighted or giving some sort of medal by Queen Victoria – Victoria, Queen Elizabeth II for saving her. And it's just like, that's, he's the equivalent of one of the the minders, uh, uh, agents of MI6. You don't get medals for that work. It's also, there's a little bit of Frank Drebin in that, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. This is a guy who wouldn't take the medal. I mean, his motto in life and one that I've adapted in my own little way at work is job needs doing. It's not about the medals. It's about this is what needs to get done. There was not this was not the Pete Wisdom who Ellis had written. And the Ella, Wisdom and Kitty break up mm-hmm. because Kitty flirts with a shield agent and Wisdom feels haunted by his past and 
so all of the character development that Ellis had given Wisdom at the end of the run is just sort of flung away as an excuse to get them apart. Right out the window. Yep. And then he, he's gone from Excalibur in issue 120 when they break up, has a cameo in the final issue of the series, 125, like one panel. And then is gone for a couple of years. Uh, probably doesn't pop up. He doesn't pop up again until probably mid 1999. So it's it, it's probably two or three years of no wisdom when he shows up in a two parter in X Force with an eye patch. Yes, the eye patch of love and a goatee. He also has a goatee at this point. Yes, yes he does. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's, he's in, in, in Genosha and teams up with X-Force, um, with, uh, from John Francis Moore for two issues and then pops up again when Ellis takes over, uh, Excalibur, X-Force during Counter X, the period when Warren Ellis was show running the three lowest selling at that point X titles, X-Force X-Man and Generation X. And Pete's not really in there much. He's, you know, he's leading X-Force. He, you know, more not as a field leader, but as a, you know, finding them their missions to go and take out uh, people who are, you know, doing horrible things to mutants. Then is quote-unquote killed off-panel, so of course he's not dead uh then we see that his hippy dippy sorceress sister romani is actually evil spy lady uh, i'm frankly leaning into one more x-files reference there where he had two sisters both of whom were named romani wisdom like arthur dales who founded the x the x-files division and was played by darren mcgavin Colcheck the night stalker when they needed him for another episode later on and they couldn't get him they got m emmett walsh to play arthur dales and Mulder's confused and m emmett walsh just says guess what we also had a sister named arthur dales and a goldfish our parents weren't very original and that's how I figure there are two ro- different Romani wisdoms, because it makes zero sense that those two characters are the same. By the but, way, Romani wisdom is a character that should come back. Yeah, she, you know, for all of the stuff he did wrong with Pete, Rab wrote a Union Jack miniseries with John Cassaday art where Romani wisdom shows up, the original Romani wisdom. He writes her really well. Wow. Yeah. It's I did a good, not know that. It's beautiful. I mean, it's early John Cassidy. It's gorgeous. Um, but yeah, in Romani and she and Union Jack used to date. Apparently, I remember, and don't quote me on where this was, but I remember reading an interview. I think it was back when Marvel had their own little – it was it was the, the follow-up to Marvel Age that, you know – fanzine that Marvel released. It wasn't an issue of Marvel Age. It was after they stopped publishing that and they published something else for a little while. Okay. But they were interviewing creators and they were interviewing Ben Rabb about his plans for Excalibur that ended because they canceled the book. But I remember distinctly him saying that Kitty was going to go back to college and Romani was going to be one of her teachers. And that would have been fun. Yeah. 
but yes, so we, we exit the Eye Patch of Love era where Pete shows up in the last issue of X Force and he's still alive. And then he disappears for quite a while. I mean, he's X Force one fi- or the last issue of the pre uh, Milligan Alred X Force. Mm-hmm. He shows up in a cameo at the end of that issue, which was cover date June 2001. And the next time he shows up is in, you see House of M Pete Wisdom in uh, an issue of Uncanny. And then he shows up in Uncanny and um, not in New Excalibur, Claremont's New Excalibur. So back in the pod with you. Yeah, exactly. This is, again, not quite Pete Wisdom. He's a little, I mean, it's it's the Ben Rab Pete Wisdom again. He's he's a little bit snarky, but he's not quite right. Yeah, he would have disappeared for basically four years in between those two points. And he's, you know, just sort of there. I mean, at least, I mean, Claremont does some stuff with... Um, Black Air again, uh, Cicluna and Threadgold, Ellis's old um, Black Air nemeses of wisdom show up in there. But they're all very much Claremont characters. They're not the Ellis versions of these characters. Also around this time, uh, Ellis, who has been doing little bits and pieces for the Ultimate Universe, does a miniseries called Ultimate Human featuring the Ultimate Hulk and Ultimate Iron Man. And there's Ultimate Pete Wisdom, who is the leader and is very much a villain and probably would have voted for Boris Johnson and Brexit. He's not a good guy. I, I can't believe that's a thing. Oh, I reread it today because I only vaguely remembered it. Issue three of the four issues is an entire Ultimate Pete Wisdom issue. He's human. He's not a mutant. And he's talking about how they need to have their own superhuman initiative and they can't just hand it over to the EU because they won't defend England in the way they need to. He really is quoting everything we heard in the run-up to Brexit. It's... Not good. It is one of that miniseries is everything about Warren Ellis comics that aren't great. And there are so many things about Warren Ellis comics that are great. And I love Warren Ellis comics, but that miniseries is just it's a giant four issue exposition dump. And the characters all sound like Warren Ellis characters and it's a, it's not a good thing. I mean, every great creator has a couple of misses in there if they do long enough body of work. And that one, my friends is a miss. (laughs) Oh boy. Um, So yeah, of of all of that, I would say, you know, the John Francis Moore X-Force stuff, you know that that's that's a fun revisit. I mean, yeah. I I did enjoy seeing him uh, in that book at the time. Uh, I remember distinctly. But again, he's being he's kind of just being passed around with no real, uh, you know, direction. Just kind of this this relic of of the '90s, like a like a used sponge CD at a CD store. Yeah. He's generic spy mutant. 
There, there's not any of the real distinct voice that made him great. Until yes, uh, a a Doctor Who uh, show writer by the name of Paul Cornell gets a hold of him in a uh, six issue Max series called Wisdom Rudiments of Wisdom from two thousand seven. Yep, right. he he takes him right out of. New Excalibur, and this is Pete Wisdom again. This is the most Pete Wisdom has been Pete Wisdom since the end of the Ellis run, and is an evolved Pete Wisdom. You know, and and still, you know, loyal loyal to the job, loyal to the crown. Uh, you know, the the haunted broken man who takes a chance on love, and it ends up you know destroying him again oh it's it's tragic the 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 oh the the his love affair with Maureen Raven is it's a heartbreaker it really oh my gosh yeah i mean i don't i don't want to spoil it for you but it it does not end it does not end well no this is a this is a very 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 British miniseries. I mean, the the fair the the realms of fairy is a part of it. There's some Jack the Ripper, some dragons, and some H.G. Wells. It's real British. Um, I wrote a piece uh, a while back where you know just kind of talking about Pete Wisdom. It was right after Wolverine got those hot claws. You remember the hot claws? The thing that everyone ignores now? Yes. Yes. I was like, well, he had hot knives. They're cooler. And, and anyway, I just wanted to remind people that Pete Wisdom existed. So anyway, uh, I, I reached out to Paul Cornell at the time and he was kind enough to send me some words about what he liked about working with the character. Uh, and so he said, and I'll, you know, I'll read it for you here. Uh, I very much enjoyed Pete in Warren's work, but I thought that the whole trench coat thing belonged in the past. And I really wanted to indicate that a cool character could dress well. Indeed, since I wanted Pete to play a leadership role, he rather had to. Uh, it also suited his desire not to wear a costume. The trench coat had rather become one. Uh, and on what he liked about the character, Cornell wrote, uh, I like his straightforward wry viewpoint, which cuts across the world of superheroes. Uh, he's also more recognizably British than a lot of British heroes. Uh, it's him I miss, actually, from that book, uh, referring to uh, what we'll talk about next. Uh, he was very much my viewpoint character. Um, so basically, Cornell writes Rudiments of Wisdom, gets this character back on track, gives him you know, an identity, takes what Warren started with and, and augments it. And then he writes uh, a fantastic, roughly 18-issue series called Captain Britain and MI-13, uh, drawn by Leonard Kirk, uh, which, you know, again, it's it's wisdom as British spymaster. It's mostly a Brian Braddock-centered book, but there, it's, it's also a team book. So wisdom's in there. Uh, Megan is brought back. Um, Spitfire, the British uh, World War II superhero. Um, Blade who originally was British, fun fact. Yep. Um, Black Knight. Black Knight. Uh, Dr. Faiza Hussein. The, the wonderful Dr. Faiza Hussein. Yeah, absolutely. That's a character that needs to come back. And um, finally, Bob, Bob the Scroll? John the Scroll. John the Scroll. Uh, John the Scroll. <laughs> yes. Because he's one of the, the Scroll Beatles. 
Yes, they exist. <laughs> and, and and this to me, I mean, again, I love the Warren Ellis run, but I I love Captain Britain and MI thirteen because in this book, our son, Pete Wisdom, stops a vampire invasion from the moon. <laughs> yes, he does. Has your son ever done that? Like, that's a bumper sticker I want. I want a bumper sticker that says, my son stopped a vampire invasion from the moon. Like, you know how other parents get a bumper sticker that says, you know, my son is an honors student at Brookdale Elementary or whatever. That that this is my version of that bumper sticker. <laughs> it, it, it is a great, great series. It is smart and it is fun and it is cool and it it gets pete so absolutely right in every interaction and it it redefines the character he starts dressing better he does (laughs) and i mean there's vests now (laughs) yes there are vests and he doesn't get into another relationship which is probably good for him because the whole maureen raven thing was it, it ended bad it oh, ended so real bad. It was, it was, it's tragic, guys. It's tragic. Read it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Any of that stuff. You can you can find those trades and you can find those books at cons and they are really, really worth it. Or better yet, and this is a, a, a broken refrain you're going to hear. Well, it's not broken yet, but it's a refrain you're going to hear for the next few weeks from me. Buy a gift card to your local comic shop. When they reopen, when it's safe to go back there, look for that trade. Ask them to special order it. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that's Pete pops up in cameos after that for a little while. He's in a couple issues of Gambit, a couple issues of Wolverine, a couple issues of X-Men Legacy that I really should read. It's during the Cy Spurrier run. And so I kind of imagine Spurrier would have an interesting take on wisdom and is British enough to probably get that character uh he he also pops up in the weird little it wasn't quite a fifth week event but it was in that mold uh it's called revolutionary war where a bunch of marvels you know british characters team up with a bunch of the marvel uk characters to fight an invasion an extra dimensional invasion in england i'm sure i'm the only one who remembers that but it I was remember a it. I didn't read it. <laughs> you know, it, it's it's um Dan Abnett, I think, or Andy Lanning, one or the other of the Abnett and Lanning team who wrote the 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 bookends, and it's it's there. It's not bad. It's not great. It's not a lot of Pete. Not as much Pete as I was hoping for from that book. But but you know, Death's Head. Yes, Death's Head and, and Motormouth and the Knights of Pendragon. All those you know, great Marvel UK hits of the 90s that no one remembers. <laughs> That's why I stopped at Death's Head. <laughs> yeah. Hey, this, this, this nearly photographic memory isn't as useful anymore thanks to smartphones. I need to use it when I can. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> but that But that brings us to the present. Uh, and, and the Dawn of X titles, and specifically uh, Teeny Howard and Marcus Toe's uh, Excalibur. I cannot tell you how thrilled I was. In the first issue of that comic, there was a panel, 
and and I was definitely like I just I yelled enhance at a paper comic book. <laughs> Pete Wisdom was leaning against a a balcony railing at the Braddock Academy in a completely wordless panel, and I probably tweeted out, "Holy crap, my son is in a comic book." <laughs> It, it, it was a great moment, and I, I should have seen it coming because when I talked to uh, Vita Ayala at FlameCon, and we were talking about their James Bond book, and we were sharing our love for Bond and talking about Pete Wisdom, I, I you know said, I know you can't talk about any of your future X work, but any chance that you might get in... And they were just like, you know, uh, Teeny really has, you know license over all the Excalibur characters and just sort of dropped it like that. I should have seen coming that, oh, that means more than they could say. They're definitely one of those ones that's very good at being coy. And I, and I appreciate about that, about the, uh, Vita very much. Um, yeah. And I thought that was as good as it was going to get. And then issue number three, last page reveal. Richter and Apocalypse are at the lighthouse trying to, uh, I, for, I forget what it is they're doing there. Uh, maybe looking for Betsy, but I think they, the rest of the team was in Otherworld at the time. You hear a voice from off panel say that he's also looking for Betsy Braddock. Last page, splash page reveal. It is our son, Pete. Woo! He's got dialogue. He's got an entire page to himself. Issue number four. He is sassing Apocalypse, one of the largest and scariest and bluest X-Men villains. Pete Wisdom ain't taking no shit. My son ain't taking no shit. Damn right. Our son ain't taking no shit. We are his fathers. Um, <laughs> and we love him very much. We do. And, and he takes on this role as the team's government liaison and handler. You know, gives Betsy an audience with the Queen... Uh, gets her into meetings with uh, representatives of, of Coven Akaba, uh, etc. And so we realize he's got a regular role in this book. He's like their uh, their their Bosley, their 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 Castiel for supernatural fans. You know, <laughs> he's he's there. He's hanging out. He's uh, like Gary from Legends of Tomorrow, but competent. Um, oh, Gary! <laughs> I love Gary. Yeah. <laughs> My, my other special boy. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's it's great. He's he's everything we wanted from a Pete Wisdom book, but he's a little less of an ass. And and that's I mean what that shows is I mean obviously this is years of character development and growth. One thing, right? He doesn't need to be an asshole. But he's still got the job needs doing mentality. And one thing that I appreciate that that Teeny has developed in him is like he doesn't need to go to Krakoa. He's like, I might go there for a vacation, but he's he's a Briton before he's a mutant. Yeah. Yeah. And what he doesn't realize that the coffee is going to be terrible. <laughs> yeah, because that green kid keeps making it. Uh, Broccoli Rob or whatever his name is. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then then they develop this flirtation between Pete and Betsy. And that was content I didn't know I wanted. And I love it. 
you know, because I think it, it works with those two because they're both married to their jobs. You know, Be- Betsy is married to being Captain Britain right now. Oh, yeah. And they both have suffered very different but considerable trauma. They're both going to kind of get that about the other one. I mean, Betsy, Jesus Christ, she's an expert at that, you know, from getting her eyes ripped out to parading, you know, parading around in a stolen body to, you know, losing that body to getting it back again and then losing it again and then getting it back. You know what I mean? Like, oh, yeah. Pete's got nothing on Betsy. Don't get me wrong. Betsy is well above any level of trauma. There's a line in um, the Bendis Spider Woman where uh, Jessica Drew is commenting on how Wolverine used to be the most effed over person in the the world. And, uh, oh God, I'm going to find it. Um, if I was the most screwed over person in the hit, if this were me talking about Logan, if I was the most screwed over person in the history of the universe, what would I do about it? And then in the end sort of thinks that she is like, no, neither of you have anything on poor Psylocke. Or yeah. poor Betsy. She's not Psylocke anymore. Or Psylocke, frankly. Poor Quanon too. Oh, yeah, that that's a whole other bag of worms. But, you know, I, I think that's why these two are a good fit for each other. And, you know, Pete can be... I, I could see where some people might read Pete's advances as kind of being smarmy, but I also think that that's just... Uh, part of his charm sounds like I'm just sort of hand-waving it away. But she clearly isn't put off by it. Right. She never tells him no. If, if she, if he flat, if he continued to flirt with her or whatever, after she flat out told him no, that would be a different thing. But she banters back. You know, they, they seem like they're, you you keep reading it, and I think in the most in the most recent issue, uh, Pete ha- is with Megan and sends her undercover into Kavanakava, and she comes out, and you know she's she's clearly upset by what she's learned there, and he comforts her with again without being creepy, without trying to put moves on her, you know, there's there's that mutual respect there. At the end of the scene, Megan says to him, and by the way, they didn't say anything about your girl. And Marcus Toe draws him with this look on his face, like mouth hanging open, like what? Like, like <laughs> he's been found out that he has a crush on Betsy, and it's just the look on his face is is adorable. Uh, and it's just like you know when this is all over, and I don't know what this, what I mean by this, whatever this current arc is, you know, I would love for these two to go on a date. You know, for it to lead this whole will they won't they thing for it to lead somewhere. But here's the problem. Things that lead somewhere with Pete Wisdom don't end well. And one of them is going to get hurt. And it's not going to be Betsy because she's the lead of the book. Yeah, I I have a bad feeling like poor Pete's going to get his heart broke again. But that's kind of what happens to him. He's got no luck in love. Our poor Petey. Our poor, our poor boy. One yeah. day, one day you'll find a partner who makes you happy. And and listen, if it doesn't work out with Betty, Be, uh, Betsy, there's a whole island full of mutants. Just take a holiday. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. Just don't drink the coffee. Just don't drink the just don't drink the green kids coffee. Yeah. <laughs> and if you stumble into Moira's no place, don't drink that coffee either. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Oh Pete. Ah. He's our son, and I want nothing but good things for him. <laughs> Damn right. So that that is that that pretty much wraps up our our discussion for this first pilot episode of the first pilot of uh, WMQ presents. Um, I hope I hope you had fun. Uh, I know that we did. Um, I we're gonna be rattling. We're gonna be kind of rotating through a few concepts and see what works and what sticks. So uh, next week, uh, I hope you'll uh, join us again. Uh, we're either going to be talking about issue number seven of the original run of Jack Kirby's New Gods uh, for a uh, podcast tentatively subtitled Beyond the Source Wall, uh, or we might be talking about Batman Mask of the Phantasm for a uh, pilot we're going to call Animated Discussions. Yeah, we, they're both ideas that we're excited for, and we hope you all out there in listener land are excited for them too. Yeah, and so uh, until until next week, uh, find find a way to keep this find a way to keep this industry going. That's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, the ability to promote your work on our site, and a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Lazowitz, built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice, and a $2 donation gets you a free random comic book in the mail from my collection. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Young Ones Podcast, Robert Secundus from Docs Talks at XavierFiles.com, Scott Madrinsky from Mojoswork.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel's uh, Spider-Woman series, and Seren. Uh, you can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Not a fan of social media? Sign up for our weekly Q newsletter, which gives you the best of WMQ every week in your inbox, plus sneak peeks at what's ahead and an early look at our weekly editorial. Finally, and most importantly, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views. And we'll see you next time.